Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to three, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And Novak Djokovic is through to yet another Wimbledon final where on Sunday he will play Carlos Alcaraz, gunning for his record-tying eighth Wimbledon title and his 24th major. Uh, he beats Yannick Sinner in straight sets in the semifinal. We are uh, reacting just a couple of hours after that. And... Uh, really uh, just about 30, 30, 40 minutes after Alcaraz beat Medvedev also in straight sets. This, uh, this Yannick center novak match, Joel, did you expect it to be closer than it was? Well, it's so interesting. Last year they played a five-setter, but this year they played a three-setter, but both players, Sinner in particular, said it was it felt closer. I thought Sinner would ask some questions, but I, don't think he'd have, I didn't think he'd have enough answers. I don't think Sinner is there yet. And it's interesting because we talk about Sinner and Alcaraz. We'll talk about where the respective games are at. I think Sinner is is still very much a work in progress. I thought John Millman had a really interesting tweet heading into the match where he said, basically, I've played all these guys and here's here it is in a nutshell. And he said about Sinner, he's the best or most amazing pure ball striker he said about Medvedev no free points he said about Alcaraz you give it to his forehand see ya bye good night and Djokovic he said it's like doing the butterfly drill over and over and over and over again and I looked at that list really hard and I thought about it and I was like if I could be one person on this list who would I want to be and who wouldn't I want to be? And the person that I would not want to be is Sinner because having your calling card being just you're a pure ball striker, that doesn't necessarily keep the ball in the court. That doesn't necessarily win you matches. And that doesn't necessarily speak to the grit or the wherewithal that it, it takes to come through. But the person that I did want to be was the butterfly drill person, Djokovic. And um, he had center on the run from start to finish. It, it's not exactly, go in fairness, it's not exactly going out on a limb, given the, the difference in, in achievement. Um, center, his first major semifinal. What, what I would say to the pure ball striking thing, and, you know, in regards to consistency, there's a lot of pure ball strikers who I I do think are very consistent and keep the ball in the court. But Sinner is erratic. He is not, an, uh, and I think it's because it's very one speed. Actually, I think there are a lot of reasons. I think part of it is te- his technique. I think part of it is that he wants to hit the ball 80 miles per hour plus on every forehand, regardless of what situation he's in. He goes for small targets. Um, and the, the, I think the feature of Sinner's ball striking is his power, but I guess where, where I think we're maybe saying the same thing is power does not keep the ball in the court. Power does not put the ball in the corner, does not put the ball close to the sideline. It's great though. It is an asset, 
But I think the problem was that Yannick Sinner couldn't make a forehand under pressure. That's right. And we were texting during that, during the match. I mean, Novak, you could see he was kind of going at, he knew that was going to safer Harbor than the backhand. He just had to figure out how to, how to get to it. Um, uh, John Millen, though, is, is kind of a funny set of comments. I mean, that's a very sensate player in the moment. I mean, once Sinner wins a slam, he won't be called that anymore. He'll just be called a great player. But in the meantime, when you're in the ascent and haven't done things yet, you're kind of like ball striker. That's kind of a, that's kind of a cousin of shot maker. You know, it's one of those terms used to describe a player and it's a compliment, but it's a compliment that's an unfulfilled. It has a compliment that speaks to potential more than yet what's been delivered. But I think Sinner, look, Sinner's 21. I, I'm very excited to see what he's going to be playing like three years from now. But the package that he brought today, not quite enough. He's 22 of 29 at the net, but maybe per some other talks, maybe there needs to be some more approaches. And obviously there's some more shape on the forehands. I just want you start with Hercotch. Sinner has a better forehand than Hercotch. But if your forehands, if you've got some foreign technique issues, I mean, Novak, he's a dentist. He will find that cavity and he will, he will crack, he will break down that forehand. He, he did it. Uh, he, he's a Craig O'Shaughnessy concept. He did it to Del Potro in the 18 US Open final. If you can break down Del Potro's final forehand, that's pretty good. Well, Novak's never afraid to go at these forehands also. I, I think if you told a lot of players, guys, that, okay, the game plan is we're going to hit to center's forehand, they would go, are you nuts? He crushes the ball, right? Like that would be kind of the reaction. I but, go there with the backhand, but the, what's the, the backhand's even more is lethal. It's not bigger, though. It's, it's not faster. Well, this becomes it's, it's more you know, solid. It's more solid, but it's not more dangerous. The thing is, I think Djokovic can go to the forehand and say, look, I'm not afraid of your big right hooks. I will absorb them. I will defend them and you will miss. Uh, so I will go to the, to the big, scary, but more erratic side because I'm not afraid of it. Where I, I think a lot of players will, will keep it on Yannick's backhand because they're afraid of the forehand. Well, maybe 80 years from now, the study will prove that the 200 backhand is meant to be the strong side all along. <laughs> And the one-handed forehand is going to maybe go the way of the one-handed backhand. And a lot more players will be playing with two hands on both sides and, you know, have these arsenals that'll be different. I mean, in a way, we see this with a lot of players. And Marin Cilic with the weaker, with the forehand, you know, the forehand that can be mercurial. Merit it misses backhand. more. It misses it's, more. Yeah. Right. So the question, the question, okay, where, where do I get hurt? Where do I dare him to winners? Where do I know he might miss? You know, and that's what makes Novak, like you said, Amy, the butterfly so good at, deploying the court, managing the court. Sinner said that he felt that this match was actually closer than last year, despite the score. And that kind of worries me because it was not a closer match. It was, um, you know, because he definitely had some, some chances last year, but it was a match where a young player, I don't think, problem solved or tried to um, employ a different type of strategy. Um, he just felt, as a lot of players do, including Daniel Medvedev, that I should be able to beat this guy with my game or I should have a shot at this with my game instead of, you know, trying to problem solve. I, huh. I, I do think he got better. Yeah, I think he's better than he was a year ago. I think last year he had the score lead. 
but once Novak, we talked about it, once Novak got that, um, got that uh, lead in the third set last year, he was pretty much in control. So Novak finished the fifth set of that match pretty easy. Whereas today, you know, he faced set points in the third set. So it was a difference. And again, Sinner is engaging. I call that tennis player logic. You always yeah. think it's better too. But I, yeah. think, I think it's sort of in some ways, remember Sinner had two break points in the opening game of the match, had some other chance. You know, so you're right. In other ways, it was like a vintage Novak and yet he wasn't in it at all, it appears. Total points won, 10 point difference for a straight sets, right? So I, I do think you can zoom in on the, the opportunities and the, the clutch points. And that's where the gap between Djokovic and Sinner was super, super decisive. And I think in the rest, you know, in, in a lot of the other areas in uh, 15 all points, it, it wasn't quite as stark. And I also think that Sinner in the first set uh, was definitely not coming to net as much as he was in the second and the third. I do think he made that improvement. But at the end of the day, like you also need to be able to execute your bread and butter. Like, what are you good at, right? Sinner was yeah. going to beat Djokovic with his power and the power needs to stay in the court or the power is no good. Well, and Sinner, you know, I think the, the nerves, first slam semi, I mean, Sinner, he's surely a better player than he was a year ago. So maybe that's what he means. Yeah. Maybe it means yeah. last year he carried them. He carries the memories of kind of this, these strange first two sets and then just being kind of beaten badly the last three sets. In this case, he felt there I was. And I had two set points in the third set. And, you know, and you have that logic that, you know, and then anything could happen. I win sure. that third set and all that stuff. Nonetheless, like you said, like we talk about all the time, Novak and, and this tiebreak, once again, what now he's won 15 straight tiebreakers in majors this year. That's amazing. Yeah. It's almost gotten to the point. I feel like we stopped counting. We're just like, yeah, a ton. A ton in a row. It was like, I, I didn't even hear it as, as emphasized. And I actually forgot about it while I was watching it. Um, so great point there. Let's I talk think about it's a record grand, uh, consecutive Grand Slam tie breaks. He now has the record over Sampras. Or maybe he broke it yeah. last tie break. That sounds right. That would be one of those things. That's like, I think, I think he not only set a record, but I think he sort of created a record because in a way, I don't know if this was kind of like data tracked as extensively. Do you know what I mean? It's like, cause Novak has been, yeah, I think it's been more, uh, I don't know if it was tracked as often because um, guys like Sampras weren't doing as well in Paris. Some guys weren't playing Australia. You know what I mean? So here's Novak, Australia, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, tiebreaker, tiebreaker, tiebreaker. His last loss in a, in a major was uh, Enzo Quaco. Quaco got him. So <laughs> that's a big, uh, big feather in the cap for the, uh, the Frenchman. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I think the overall record is 17 in a row. I think Roddick has it. I haven't verified that, but somebody in my Twitter replies said that, so I'll, I'll make that clear. Um, Does anyone actually put a feather in their cap? <laughs> the Frenchman, I can see him putting a feather in his cap. <laughs> I don't know where that one comes from. Uh, Joel, it seems like something something you might have knowledge of. No, no. Oh, okay. Thank you. Nobody knows. Nobody knows in that case. All right. Uh, let's highlight a, a moment here. There's a hindrance call from yes. Richard Haig, the chair umpire. Novak mm -hmm. kind of brushes it off. Like he, he's able to move forward. There's no huge emotional reaction. And 
I think I would have been pretty ticked off. I look, Novak wasn't happy about it, but Amy, what did you think of like the mental response to that call? And if you also want to talk about the call, we can discuss that as well. It, by the letter of the law, is it a hindrance? Yes, because if you back up the videotape and go frame by frame and, and all that, um, yeah, you could hear Novak's voice when the ball was on the other side of the court. Novak joked afterwards that it could have been something with the echo, and I, there, maybe it was. Um, but the the miscarriage of justice is that this is never called or rarely called. And, you know, as um, Anz Jabor said about playing Sabalenka, she was grunting for both of us. I mean, <laughs> the grunt was lasting so long. Was it ever called on Sabalenka? No. So it reminded me of the phantom football call against Serena, which to this day, people go frame by frame on that, and they still cannot find the football. So if it's that close, what were you doing calling the football in that situation? That's kind of how I feel about this. It's just not called. So why do you pick now to do it? That being said, as to your first question, he handled it brilliantly. He's going to ask for clarification. He's going to voice his opinion that he doesn't like it. And then he, he just goes to work and railroads his opponent. And two points later, he gets a time violation in the same game. So it's a, it's a series of things. And he talked about afterwards in his press conference, he talked about how kind of maintain composure through that and, and whether that situation, I think, I think the macro thing going on is chair umpires in the electronic line calling era are a little uncertain of what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be doing it. And there's, a you know, we, we've seen a lot over the last couple of years, some uncertainty of chair umpires and, and challenges and, and how they go about conducting themselves in a way they're not as when they when they were supervising a whole crew of lines persons there was something that they had they were like commanding an orchestra now they have all this ai they have all this technology doing the work and they're a little so their their engagement in the match sometimes wavers because we've seen this at times things that happen it's like whoa whoa what's that where'd that come from you're giving this guy a hindrance he never had a hindrance in his life and no it's like at this stage and, and right what was that yeah, look, the thing is, a, it, it is a judgment call. Like, their hindrance is not, it's not like in or out, ball on the line, ball, not, it's just, it's not like that. I think it was a bad judgment, but it is a judgment call. Um, and, you know, my, my thing is, look, when uh, when words are not uttered, right? When, when words are uttered, that's very distracting. But uh, a, a delayed grunt, uh, players are not put off by that, really. Um, and I think if they were, you know, there are some players who do this regularly, Ferrer sometimes, Pablo Carreño Busta sometimes, Alcaraz sometimes, Sabalenka, Saris Cerebas Tormo. Like a lot of players have a bit of a, a delay in their grunt because I think it comes at the end of their exhale, the end of their exertion. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it's not usually called. And look, it's not that distracting. Otherwise, players would complain. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not a fan of the call. But yeah, Novak did do a, a really good job of moving on. Um, and then also I thought one of the things he did mentally was just stay really engaged in that third set. And I kind of think he used the crowd, uh, kind of that were getting against him. I think he used that to keep him intense. Yeah. Right. Because like, here's the reality of that, Amy, it's like, was Sinner 
bringing the fight to him in that moment to the fullest extent? Like, was he actually making him worried and, and, and nervous and not really, right? Like two sets no. to love lead. That's the part of the match where you can fall into the trap of relaxing. I think those fans yeah. didn't let him relax because it was, oh, you think you're going to celebrate the third set? Mm -mm -mm. You're going to be crying at the end of this. <laughs> Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Am I crazy or am I reading that well where like, I think he's using the crowd there in his favor? Yeah, he, yeah. And, and we've seen him do that a million times where, you know, he needs to summon the, the will to continue playing these types of points and the motivation. And he finds a little something to help him along in summonsing that, that motivation. And uh, no, you're right. That's a great point. Sinner was not like really giving it to him at that very moment, but he knew how crucial it was and that if he wanted to put the match away in straight sets, he needed to, to get himself going. Well, look, and then to in, Novak. he faced, you know, okay, four, five, uh, 15, 30. Novak has an approach shot. He intentionally, he goes cross court to the center forehand and misses. So now he's down two set points. You're right. He had to find some, had to find some energy and that energy is such a interesting thing even for someone as evolved in all physical mental ways as novak he was still doing the stuff that i know i do when somebody tells me that guy thinks you're terrible you know it's like you know the, the just there's that extra what is it is it five percent is it seven percent whatever it is that extra something that brings that kind of locks one into a little bit more of that sensate mindset and novak then okay right and he, you know even novak you think again someone as as tremendous as him, find some other energy. Yeah, I, I think he's in control of it. Like we saw in yeah. 2019 against Federer, he didn't do any of that because he he didn't think it was the right call at that time. And he had to worry about Roger and he, he did not need any extra. It was a completely different match, completely different mm -hmm. situation. Right. right. So he didn't need it there. But I think in the third set, it made sense to me. It's like, oh yeah, this this could help you because you need to stay intense. So I thought that was interesting. He also needed it. He needed it in the uh, reeling back way back in the 2011 U.S. Open semi that he won from match point, two match points down. And, and you know, that that makes you think of it. It would be really interesting to talk with mega slam winners. Djokovic, Federer, Navratilova, Connors, McEnroe about that whole engagement with the crowd, because that's that's really rare air. You know, what's it like playing semis and finals of majors? in front of people and how, when they, like Billie Jean King once said, they love you when you're young, they hate you when you're winning, and then they love you again when you're old. And so how does that That's all, good. how does that all work? But how's that, how do you manage that? And actually in different places, you know, we've seen like the French crowds, they have their energy, the Wimbledon have, it's, I think that's an interesting, that might be a worth an intriguing explanation if you could get enough time, because Novak, he's really made kind of an art form of it. Well, when are they going to like start really loving Novak again? Is he going to have to be like 80 years old? Loving he's... him again? They'll love him. Well, oh, oh, two days yeah. from now. Two days from now. Okay. 
I think that's going to be, I think there'll be a nice mix of both. I think that'll be a nice, a nice mix of happiness all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the Wimbledon crowd, a little bit different from Paris and New York. Yes. Cause when, when a player's down two sets to love, the Wimbledon crowd is almost always going to just root for whoever's losing. Whereas in New York, it's kind of like, pick a side, F that guy, go that guy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. 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 No, that, well, that's an interesting thing too. That'd be interesting. That would be an interesting part of almost like the story with its, with its chart of assets and liabilities of each, of each of those four cities, you know, the fairness aspect, the, we love you aspect, the underdog, the, the nationalist, the national aspect, all that kind of stuff. And Novak, Novak weathered all of these things through these stages of his career. All right, with that, let's get to the final. It is a, uh, a rematch of the Roland Garros semi where uh, Djokovic was able to uh, come through um, after Alcaraz cramped at the, uh, at the start of the third set. Um, but let's first talk about the surface. Let's talk about, you know, clay to grass, how this matchup changes. Joel, like, uh, do you think, well, I'll ask you open-ended. How do you think this changes the matchup? I think this helps Alcaraz more. I think the clay, the combination of the high-stakes situation, the first Roland Garros semi versus Novak, and the grinding effort it takes to win points on clay all contributed to kind of the Alcaraz, you know, what decline in physical. that match. Physical. The physical, mental, the whole thing that cascaded in that match. I think grass is such a surface for opportunists even now in its slower stage. And I think that'll help Alcarez get in the flow of more points. I'm not saying that means he's going to win the match, I think. And and the fact that he's uh, faced this situation before now, you know, it's a final instead of a semi, but it's still high stakes versus Novak. Um, Probably more temperate weather conditions. I mean, even it's not going to be what, it's not going to feel like it's 94 degrees on the court in clay. If it's hot, it feels even hotter when you're on clay, grass, I think that's gonna. I think it's gonna make for some really uh, tremendous tennis. Yeah. So this this ties into the surface a little bit. I was looking at the ATP's metric for you know they have if you go they have figured out these um, algorithms for serve leaders and return leaders and uh, under pressure. So mm-hmm. it's not really a super scientific thing. They've just taken certain things and weighted them in certain ways. It's kind of a fun thing to look at. But on their return leaders, um, over the course of the past 52 weeks on all services, um, guess who the top four returners are? I'm going to go Alcaraz, number one, because his break percentage is just through the roof. I'll say Djokovic, two. Medvedev three and four, four is a a tough one. I could go, uh, I I don't know. I don't have a good guess on four. Plainness and those, yes, center. It's those four. Amy, weren't those Um, your pitch? Weren't those your pre tournament picks to reach the semis? uh, Yeah, thank you for remembering that. that. Oh, that's that's what it's Could I, do you have a feather? Do you have a feather nearby? Yeah, in my cap. Um, I don't even have a cap nearby. Um, no, but I actually, Gil, I, I could be wrong about this because I glanced at it like 10 seconds before we started recording. I think actually Medvedev might be two right now. Again, this doesn't mean a whole lot. So nobody get, you know, your knickers in a twist over this. But um, I think it does show you that Medvedev 
despite the fact that he was adopting a return position which is ill-suited for grass standing way back he is a great returner and Alcaraz was able to come through that pretty easily um you know Djokovic is going to be facing a better returner even though center is a very high quality returner Alcaraz is even better so that's interesting um remember I was keeping an eye on the second second serve service speed of Novak and it was in the 90s for this match I peeked at it at one point it was 93 so again he doesn't have to do more and if he doesn't have to do more with it why would he um but he may have to do more against Alcaraz on the second serve yeah yeah because yeah, we got that's... a we got a super great returner here we got the number one returner by the ATP's metrics so you might have to play around a little bit you know a serve 90 miles second serve 90 miles an hour if that's not cutting it you know and, and Novak is more than capable of upping it as we've seen him do well, that's actually been maybe the the only crack that I've seen in, in Djokovic. I thought, you know, first couple rounds at Wimbledon, he was trying to up the second serve speed, and then he came right back down um, pretty quickly. And, I mean, against Sinner, it was probably the weakest part of his game, I thought, second serve. Now, he did come up with a 118 second in the tie break. To, yeah, I saw that. A, yeah, crucial <laughs> service winner there. Uh, but I completely agree that that Novak will have to do better in, in that area. Um but I, I do think the grass, I think there are two aspects to it for me. There's the, the court conditions, and then there's the, you know, outside of outside conditions, right, that have nothing to do with ball speed and bounce and stuff. I think the court conditions are going to help Novak do better in this matchup. Um, when, when, you, when you increase the importance of serve, I think Djokovic has a better first serve than Alcaraz. You increase the importance of, of return, um, I think Novak returns better than Alcaraz, even though, God, Carlitos has been impressive um, in this tournament on the return. Um, and I'm not talking about winning return points also, which the ATP metrics, Amy, that's the one downfall with them, is they can't interpret what, how much the return of serve itself has to do with it versus winning the return point. That's True. the weakness, right? True. Um, but that that bang-bang tennis quick points, and then also Djokovic's ability to rush Alcaraz, take his time away, hit big, stay offensive, all these things that Medvedev honestly just doesn't do, right? He doesn't take time away. He doesn't hit the ball hard. He doesn't stay offensive. Well, so, Medvedev-Alcaraz is a terrible match. Ter terrible matchup. Terrible matchup. I think Novak is a much tougher matchup for Novak. I mean, for Alcaraz. What Novak does replicates a lot of the things that Yannick Sinner has done successfully to Carlos Alcaraz. Just hug the baseline, hit hard off both wings, like through the middle, rush that forehand. That's what makes Alcaraz uncomfortable. You got to pin him and you got to do certain things. I mean, I, you got to, he's a dynamic returner because he'll, he'll come in on returns. He'll, he'll look to control the court right away. Yeah. Medvedev, Medvedev is going to start 10 feet behind the court and get a, a foot behind the court. You know, Alcaraz is going to start inside and come inside. He's going to do all this kind of time rushing. I, I think it's going to be a really, really fun match. I, I think it's going to be more fun tennis-wise than the French final, the French semi, the, the Roland Garros one. The second think, set, if I can say, the second set was one of my favorite sets of the year. No question. 
that was great. I think, I don't know, I guess because I'm a fan of this kind of opportunistic, it's like I, I wrote this, I said, you either take the bounce or the bounce takes you. So you need to see when you see that moment or that bounce comes, you better do something because it might not come by again and someone else will take it. Whereas on clay, there's this, there's this more neutralizing thing that occurs. You know, okay, we'll be neutral and we'll go back to the toothpick by toothpick way. Whereas on grass, it's like, okay. And that's, and, and Alcaraz is a consummate opportunist. I mean, he's a contemporary version of a player. This is going to sound odd to you, a little bit like John McEnroe that way. Here's my chance. Go. I'm going. I'm pressing. I'm looking mm -hmm. to press the action on you in some shape or form. And, well, and that, yeah, go on. One of his favorite tools is the drop shot and he was just feasting with it today because of Medvedev's court position that will not be available to him in the same way that it was today no you see he also used that he also used though that slice down the line backhand approach shot Medvedev's yep. now mm -hmm. Novak is a better form than Medvedev but still I, th I just I'm just the arsenal aspect of this match is fascinates me grass I mean I've been kind of like uh Maybe because I haven't been there in a few years watching it, Wimbledon on grass, I've kind of like reminding myself of what I so enjoy about grass court tennis and how much better it is now than it was as, as the court in the new in the newer grass era, longer rallies, all court play. And, and a guy like Alcaraz is showing another flourishing of it beyond what the big three were doing, not beyond, but learned from what the big three did. I want to just, just throw this out here. It's, you know, it doesn't, it has, it's an Alcaraz question, not a Djokovic question. But in 2021, uh, I was on a podcast, Alex Gruskin's podcast, talking about Alcaraz, and he was still kind of new. And because he was Spanish, a lot of people were like, oh, it's like a clay court guy. And I was trying to make the point, that's this what, like 2021, Alcaraz discourse was like, oh, clay court guy. And I was, I had actually watched him play, unlike the people saying this and stereotyping based on what country he's from. And, um, and I said... Alcaraz might win more Wimbledons than French Opens in his career. Hmm. Um, what are like the chances? That. What are the chances of that in, in your opinion, Joel? I love that. I love that kind of thinking. And I love the fact that some people in May, I love the fact that, oh yeah, well, Gil here has actually seen the guy play. Right. Yeah. yeah. You guys are just basing a thing based on where he has his passport. I mean, I hate that. I hate that. I remember once when, uh, when Lindsay Davenport came up since she was from Palace Verdes, some said, yeah, I should probably play a lot like, uh, like that baseliner Tracy Austin, and while they had things in common, Lindsay had a whole other level of of um, you know the serve and a whole aspect to her game. So I think it's pretty dangerous for anyone in the media to to just think, oh, he was from Spain, therefore, I mean, wow. So yeah, I think that's very plausible that Alcaraz can end up winning more Roland Garros, particularly since we know Nadal's going to win another ten. It's going to take it up. Nadal's going to win ten more Roland Garros titles, and. <laughs> Um, and it's going to be, he's going to hold that position. Yeah, I think it's possible. I, you know, I'm not, I was trying to make a point back then. So I don't know if I would have, would say it right now, honestly, but <laughs> you know, um, let, what about mentally, you know, handling the moment, right? I mean, we, we know how mental that last meeting between Djokovic and Alcaraz was last time. Amy, how is it different this time? 
He's already brought up the cramps in the post-match interview saying, I'm not going to cramp again, essentially, <laughs> if, that, if that's what, <laughs> if that's what, um, so, you know, I don't know that, that Alcaraz played a poor mental match against Djokovic in the French Open. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have ever been in that situation where you cramp badly. It, it really doesn't have to do with the mind. It's not like you can set your mind right and stop Whoa. it. Wait, wait, he was playing for two hours. Why do you think he, I, I think he definitely cramped because of the tension and the pressure. Right. He said that. Uh, that uh, the, yeah, but that uh, Dr. Dr. Gross and Dr. Drucker, it really is like a medical or physiological phenomenon. So I don't know that you two can proclaim that. Uh, there are other things related to salt, potassium, things like that within the body. So, um, I mean, I know when I've cramped it, it, yes, the, the couple times that I've cramped, it's been intense situations, um, but it was also extremely hot and, and, um, I was borderline dehydrated, even though I was drinking like a fish. So, um, I don't think it was, a um, the, the, the tennis that he was engaged and healthy and able to play, I thought he played mentally very strong. So um, I think Alcaraz is in a really good mindset right now. This is going to be a tough one for Novak. Oh, it will be a tough one, I think, because of the style. And I think uh, Novak's effort in Paris is very, uh, very impressive how he how he did that. But I don't know. I think Carlos has admitted that prior to the prior to that match. I mean, he was kind of like, spiking high i don't know what he was sleeping like the night before a lot of things go into it but you're right i'm not a doctor one thing i did want to clarify when i was talking about that comparison um lindsey davenport is nine inches taller than tracy austin so i just remember talking to this person who said yeah she's probably gonna play just like tracy austin and they hadn't even seen her play so that's my point about the our colleagues mm -hmm. thought haven't even seen Alcaraz and assume this thing about alcaraz and alcaraz he loves federer he's a whole different cat than some uh, some of the classic Spanish than classic Spanish clay quarters. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess we should do a little more research on this uh, cramping. Well, I, I have done actually a lot. Um, I did a piece on Holger Runa for, for baseline media. And the fact is the science around cramping is unbelievably inconclusive because it's very hard to trigger it in a lab setting. And in order to do sci do experiments and make scientific conclusions on something like this, you have to know how to trigger it so that you can control variables and, and oh, such. Oh, I see. You have so, to kind of, oh, God. Right. I mean, that's the, the only way to study something is to trigger something, and then you can study it. So cramping science, cramping science is a mess. And that's why sometimes- To my takes, point, to my point, right? I know, I know, but we have now, we have experiential, and we won't get bogged down on this, but we're going to have to agree to disagree because experientially, numerous, you know, pro upon pro upon pro has said, that it's the nerves that trigger the cramping. That's right? anecdotal. Like, you mean yeah, anecdotal. anecdotal? Anecdotal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't accept that because I have a scientific method type mind. Um, and I just think it's more complicated than that. Because if cramping equals nerves, then, and that's all there is not to always. it, there's not nothing always. to do with no, no, salt, no. water, potassium. Not always. Sometimes. Sometimes dehydration sometimes overexertion, but also sometimes nerves. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a component. I just, I, we shouldn't proclaim, like, even Carlos, I don't know if he should complain, proclaim, like, the reason I cramped was nerves. You know what I mean? No, but he knew also, and also, oh, yeah, and by the way, Novak, you know, on an 87-degree yeah. day, making, extracting, from, I don't think, for yes. example, yes. I, I can't, I can't, I, I don't think, uh, there are great many tennis players who that Alcaraz might not have cramped against. Um, that said, on the cramping part, you guys, you know, Gil, you lived on the East Coast for much of your life. Amy, you're there. I've cramped once in my life, and it happened in Texas. So there you go. California, not as much humidity, not as many situations. I've only cramped once. So yeah, I know. You know, you guys, I don't know how many times have you cramped, Amy? Um, twice. Two big ones that I can think of. Okay. Yeah. 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 They were both on super hot days, like 95 degrees. Me, me, me about the same, but it usually after I'm done playing, actually not during, um, playing it forward though. I, I, I think even beyond the cramping, like even the way Alcaraz played the first set against Djokovic in Paris, I thought he was freaking out. I thought his nerves were awful. And I, I actually think against Holger Runa in the quarterfinal, at this Wimbledon, his nerves were awful. And I think if Holger uh, played a, a better level, he, he would have won that match. So I, I actually think right now um, it's, it's number one on my list of concerns with Alcaraz is just dealing with tension and, and just playing his best with tension. That said, I think he'll be more relaxed this time than he was last time because it doesn't have, there hasn't been this one year buildup to this match. Um, and yes, it's a Wimbledon final, but Alcaraz is an, an underdog instead of the favorite. And I, I, you know, whatever you may think about Alcaraz's status as the favorite at Roland Garros, the fact is, you know, that that's what the odds were. And I think that's a lot of the narrative was that he could win um, at the very least. And here it's kind of Djokovic's house, Wimbledon. I think he can have more of an underdog mentality. And he also knows to learn from his mistakes. And I think it's getting together with his team, which is what he talked about after Paris. And it's like, we are going to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So we are going to use strategies to stay calm. And I think that's what Alcaraz is going to do. Strategies to stay calm. And I don't think that, I don't think physicality is going to affect this match whatsoever. Agreed. I agree. And then, of course, and then there are things like diet and whether it's meditation or rituals or meals or energy management. A player told me once, a guy would play it. He said, you know, in early in your career, it's like you're still being like a junior. You're just playing. You're just playing tennis matches. And then as the years go on, you learn all these different things about time management and energy management and even things like you know, scheduling tournaments to play in. I mean, look what happened. Look what we saw happen to Dominic Team you know, the overbooking of scheduling and you learn all these different things about the care and managing of a, of a pro career and how you take care of yourself to get yourself that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, taking us back in the way back machine um, to our last podcast, Gil, I remember you bringing up, you know, like Djokovic's injuries might be the only thing that could hold him back from winning this, possibly. He stayed mm -hmm. very healthy, knock wood. Um, and I thought really the only thing standing in his way would be Alcaraz. And and that's how it's shaped up to be. And um, by the way, I think Alcaraz still stands in his way. So um, 
this could be this could be an epic. Yeah, I, it, hope, it is. I hope it is. I hope because I, I think it'd be just you know the last two Wimbledon finals Novak won. He played some formidable opponents, grabbed the first set, Kyrgios and Berrettini. But Alcaraz is, is cut of a whole different cloth, so that's really yeah to see. And he's already won a major. He's already yep. won a major, so that's neat too. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad we got this as the final. And we remember we also talked about Alcaraz's terrible draw, and to me, Nicholas Jari played incredible. Like if uh-huh. Alcaraz was off on that day, he would have lost. Um, you know, and then Berrettini, I think a little bit off his game, but still, like he ended up playing some some really great opponents and and finding his way through anyway. And Hercotch had this insane serving day against Djokovic, so both of them. Have uh, have been so impressive. Straight sets, semifinals. I mean, man. I'll tell you what I like about the uh, about all those matches. Those matches you cited. This is the thing I, I enjoy about Wimbledon so much. These matches tilt on a knife's edge in a way they don't on any other surface, because of the whole nature of grass and this. That's why. That's why the attentiveness at Wimbledon, a break point, a set point, you know, because these points can fly by, and you don't get them. And yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. Can we do a quick exercise um, and then we'll and then we'll sign off. Let's do for each player. So what's the area where Djokovic has the largest advantage over Medved, uh, sorry, over Alcaraz? And then we'll do the other way. Area where Alcaraz has the biggest advantage over Djokovic. I'll start Djokovic over Medvedev. For me, it's still it's still nerve management. It's mental. It's it's executing under pressure. Now I could see a world in which maybe maybe it doesn't play out that way because Novak has, you know, favorite status and going for the Grand Slam. But still, uh, what would I, out of everything, I would say it's the mental area where Djokovic has the biggest advantage over Alcaraz. Amy, what about you? I I would say I've seen enough. I, I you make really good points, and yeah, I, I would maybe little agree with you. Um, but I would say actually, joke for Djokovic, it's the serve because of how well he's been serving, particularly serve, first serve. Um, and then are we doing out, what? Out no, no, just, just okay. Djokovic, yeah. Got it. Joel? Um, I'm going experience. I mean, he's played, this is 30, record 35th Grand Slam final. This is Alcaraz's second and his first at on the court of courts. And I've talked to enough people and seen it, been around it myself. And so you walk onto that center court, it's a whole other thing. Then the other three majors, then Davis Cup, then anything else walking onto that court for the first time. And Carlos is as, as well prepared for it as you could imagine a 20-year-old could be. But still, that court, that thing, and that and that experience aspect. I think that's what that's Novak's X factor difference. Okay, I think uh so mental serve experience, all very good choices. Now, uh, now let's go the other way. Alcaraz for uh, for Djokovic. Alcaraz over Djokovic. And Amy, I'll we'll start with you. The forehand, baby. That I I saw him hit just balls that that had no business being hit that hard and and stay in the court over a hundred miles an hour. Um, any opening that you give him, even if you don't think you're giving him an opening, he can crush it at any time. I'm going to go with the innovation index, the whole eclecticism of Alcaraz's game. You know, this way he's using the forehand, of course, is the primary 
about a whole bunch of things. It's like it's it's just like he's he's the young one, he's the new one, and we we know what Novak's pretty much going to bring to this match tactically. We might see some wrinkles, but we know as well we should. We've seen this guy playing for more than fifteen years. Alcaraz, first Wimbledon final, he's going to try out a lot of things, and it's not just the kitchen sink. It's more like the the dining room table. <laughs> I think uh, I I thought about going forehand. Let's go net rushing. I think Djokovic is is so good in the retrieval aspect of things. What Alcaraz will do is is he'll put the ball away. He'll just come forward and put the ball away. So uh, he really takes away defense in a in a big way with how he attacks the net with his speed. Um, all right. Well, it's a, a final I, that I, I, I want to add what? something to this. Um, as you mentioned that, I, I want to just pose this briefly. Might we say that, save for the, the days when Federer was beating Novak a good amount of time, is this the best volley guy Novak has, play, has played in a high-stakes match? I mean, high I'm not talking about one-off against a, in a semi. What, what about Nadal? I mean, talk about a, I'm not talking about Nadal's skill at the net and his prowess because that's still not a primary aspect of the Nadal game. I'm looking at Alcaraz as a as a net rusher kind of guy. I'm not saying he's Stefan Edberg or Patrick Rafter. Okay, Nadal, yeah, Nadal, but I don't think I don't think of Nadal's volleying as having carried the day for him versus Novak in their matches. It's made some things, but it hasn't been the primary. But it was always there. It has always been there on break point. You know, okay. it's all right. Then maybe okay. Then maybe I, I'm just I'm spitballing with you. No, it's I'm fine. Not... It's fine. It's fine. I put Nadal, but anyway, okay, but not many other than two me- two fellow three members. And here's a young guy who who does it in his own way, different than Federer and Adele. Yeah, I I think Alcaraz is is definitely a more significant net rusher than than Nadal and and Murray, um, no doubt. Uh, even though Nadal's volleys are amazing, if you're not going up as much, I think that's you know that just makes it a lesser part of your game. Curios last year, no, last year's Wimbledon final, he did have to contend with somebody who was going to come forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a one-off. That was just one match, but you make a good point, Joel. Uh, this, this will not, I don't, this will not be a, uh, a Craig O'Shaughnessy example of somebody who decided to play Djokovic from the baseline. Right. Should be great. It'll be uh, explosive fireworks. Whole world will be watching. We will be talking about it after it ends, uh, which will also be exciting. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. If you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe, and leave a review on Apple and Spotify. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.